I'm back. Woo! It feels good to be back. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be back. We, um, on our sabbatical, we visited something like six churches, and uh, each one was instructive and wonderful, and, and God met us each time. But there was always a part of us that just said, we want to be back at our own church. And the kids kept asking, can we go to our church? And so it's so good to be back at our church and with the people that we love. Thank you. Thank you for receiving us so warmly. Thank you for sending us out on that sabbatical. It was uh, so good. Um, the Lord really met us in really beautiful ways as a family. And so I want to give a report on that sometime, let you know about all that. But thank you for releasing us and sending us. Uh, thank you for your faith and your generosity and your love. Uh, thank you for remembering me when I got back. Um, most of you did. I did have one kid come up and, and say like, oh, I forgot you were a pastor here. <laughs> Which I wanted to talk to them about filters. Like there are things we don't say, <clears throat> but it's okay. Thank you. Love you guys. I'm glad to be back. I've been waiting to say this for a couple months now. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're jumping back into our study through Matthew's gospel, and our passage today marks an important transition. We're heading into a new section one that focuses on the mission of the church and how appropriate as we are in these warmer summer months to be thinking about mission and reaching others. So we're in Matthew 9, and the title of our sermon today is A Heart for the Harvest. A Heart for the Harvest. In commenting on this passage that we're going to be reading, pastor and author Douglas O'Donnell relates an experience he had at an electronic store where he was waiting in line to purchase a new radio, car radio, uh, for the one that had died in what he described as his hip Dodge Caravan. Which, if anyone knows what a Dodge Caravan is, is not hip. Here's how Mr. O'Donnell relates the experience. After I selected my Sony, I followed the young blue-shirted associate to the front of the store as he held my new radio. There he placed it on checkout number eight and turned to me and said, please go to the back of the line. Off I went to infinity and beyond, he says. As I waited in line, I formed a few critical and condescending thoughts. I looked at the guy who escorted me to the front. There he was, two aisles away, flirting with some co-worker. He was probably 30 years old, had greased back, black hair. He was kind of frumpy looking. And I thought to myself, what is he living for? I bet he lives at home, takes a class or two at the community college to pacify his worried mother, works part-time at the store, and then spends most of his paycheck on video games, the latest electronic gadgets, fast food, and Friday night drinking binges with his buddies. Then I looked at the people in line with me. They were all roped together like sheep being led to slaughter. A woman was doing her best to corral us, prodding us to move along, and remember, I had nothing in my hand. My radio, apparently too value for my potently thieving hands to touch, was waiting patiently for me. But everyone around me had carts full of stuff, expensive, electronic stuff. So I began to think, what is the world coming to? What are these people living for? Do they have enough money to buy all this? From the looks of them, they don't. And if they do, what does it profit a man to gain a big screen TV but lose his soul? And then only a pastor would think of this passage while he's waiting in a long line. He said, how long, O Lord, must the righteous wait for your deliverance? Now, we laugh, and partly because he wants us to laugh, he's relating this funny, and, and I, I think it's hilarious how he brings in these passages to kind of 
uh, interpret what he's going through right there. You know, how long, oh Lord, must the righteous wait? He's sitting in line. And so it's funny, but, but it's also like uncomfortably funny. Right, because, because we listen to him and we think, oh, those are, those are bad thoughts to be having of other people. But if you kind of prod underneath that a little bit, it's even more uncomfortable because we've all had thoughts like that. And so sometimes we laugh to kind of keep conviction at bay. We don't like conviction because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Conviction humbles us. And it tells us there's an area of our life that needs work, that needs changed. And we usually feel like we've got a busy schedule already and we don't want to add something else to it. We don't like conviction. But conviction is actually a work of the Spirit. John 16.8 teaches, Jesus is saying this, and when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. So conviction is a work of the Spirit. And it kind of comes to us in two stages we see in this passage here. The Holy Spirit shows us our sin, convicts us of sin, of what we are doing wrong, how we're thinking, feeling wrongly, but then He also shows us how to turn from it and walk in the path of righteousness. So conviction is a work of the Spirit, and I think before we get into this passage, we need to ask ourselves, are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life today? Right, like we're, we're not passive receivers of God's Word. It doesn't just kind of wash over us. We're active engagers. Are you open to the working of the Holy Spirit? Are you open to conviction? Okay, so then let me ask you and answer yourself honestly. Have you ever walked into a neighborhood or walked into a store, walked into a family dollar store or a Walmart or something and looked around and had the, the thought, these are not my people. I'm not comfortable with these people. These are, these are not the people I want to relate to. Joshua and I had an experience like that recently. My son Joshua, if you don't know, uh, he and I had to go and pick up something and we stopped at the family dollar store down Copley Road. It's right down here, down on the bad part of Copley Road, if you know the bad part of Copley Road. And we walked in and immediately realized we were surrounded by a lot of people that don't shop at the mustard seed right by our house. And we felt uncomfortable. And part of that's understandable. They're different than us. They live differently. They look differently. They act differently. Dress differently. But we were talking about it afterwards, and we were bombarded with temptations to think critically. Right? Like, just like O'Donnell. What are they living for? What are they doing with their life? Why are they acting like that? Our passage today addresses all of us who are prone to look around and think critical and condescending thoughts of the lost. Because in contrast to our closed hearts, Matthew wants to give us a moving picture here of Jesus' compassionate heart. How much he loved the lost. And by giving us this picture of Jesus, by seeing Him, He wants to help transform us from one degree of glory to another. So let's look at Jesus and what He has to teach us here. We're in Matthew 9 and we're looking at verses 35 through 38 today. I invite you to follow along now as I read God's holy word to us. Matthew 9, 35-38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities 
and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May the Lord bless both the preaching and the believing of his word today. These verses, as I said a minute ago, mark an important transition in this gospel. Chapters 4 through 9 have given us a snapshot of Jesus as a man on mission. Jesus is the great missionary sent by the Father to bring salvation to the world. And in chapter 10, where we'll go next week, uh, we find Jesus sending out the twelve to do the very same thing he's been doing. To be on mission like he's been on mission. So, to quote Jesus from John's Gospel, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so, he sends out the twelve on mission. And then, how does the Gospel of Matthew end? Chapter 28, what is it? I'm just looking for loudness, because there's this... Yes, I'm giving you... I'm going to work... So, we went... Pause. Side note. We went to some churches where people were like super enthusiastic in the message, you know? So like the preacher is preaching and, and the people are like, he's saying things that are convicting and they're like, come on, like, like bring it on, you know? And, uh, and then when he says something they're convicted on, they were standing up, yes, sir, yes, sir. And my kids are like, whoa, what's going on? I'm like, they're responding to the preaching of God's word. It's beautiful because the pastor knows the spirit's at work here. And that's a good thing for the pastor to know. And so I'm just looking for a little engagement here. You don't have to stand up and say yes, sir, anything like that. I'm just wanting to know. Matthew 28, the gospel ends with what? We commonly call it the Great Commission. The Great Commission. That's right. Good job. So the Great Commission, right? Where, so this is where Jesus sends out all the disciples, the whole church, on mission. All right? And so the way Jesus sends the 12 out on mission in this next chapter, and the very way he sends us out on mission at the end of the gospel, is to go and do mission like he has done mission. Jesus is the model missionary. And so that's what we find first in our passage this morning, a summary of how Jesus lived on mission. So point number one, the rhythm of mission. The rhythm of mission. Look again with me at verse 35 here. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now this is the same thing that's said about Jesus is, was said to Jesus in chapter 4. It's the exact same wording almost. And so this is the missional rhythm of Jesus' life. Now let me... Pause that and back up here for a minute and remind you of something. This is going to be an, an interactive moment again. Are you ready for this? Giving you guys heads up. Jesus didn't make converts. He made what? Disciples. That's right. That's what Christians are. Disciples of Jesus. So what is a disciple? And I'll let you know when I... I'll help you guys so you know when to respond. I'll try to help you with that, Okay. Although you can respond anytime you want, however you want, as long as it's like not distracting to... This is really hard to navigate, isn't it? We're going to figure this out, church. We're going to get a rhythm of interaction and response, and just I, and we're going to figure it out with the help of the Lord. But anyway, okay, so what is a disciple? This is what I was talking about. A disciple in Jesus' day was someone who followed their teacher around to be with their... They wanted to be with their teacher they wanted, so they could learn from him to be like him and do what he did. And that's exactly what a disciple of Jesus is. Someone who wants to be with Jesus. They want that relational component. Someone who wants to be like Jesus in their character and in their desires, to have their 
their, their inner person shaped like Jesus, and they want to live like Jesus lived. They want to do what Jesus did. They want their conduct, their lives, to look like his. So that's discipleship. Jesus is making disciples, and it's really that last component, you know, doing what Jesus did, living like he lived, that's in view here in, thir- in verse 35. This is how Jesus did mission. This is how he lived out mission, and it's a model for us. It's an example he left us to study and to follow. So if you want to know how to live on mission, this is it. Jesus gave us a model, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. No matter where he went, no matter what else he did, verse 35 says, in every city and in every village, he went throughout them, the grammatical senses, he continually, he just kept going out doing the same thing, teaching the Bible, proclaiming the gospel, healing the hurting. So this was the missional rhythm Jesus lived in. It was his missional rhythm, and it was his model for his disciples. The twelve had been traveling with him. They'd been studying his life. They'd been seeing how he lived on mission. And in chapter 10, he's going to send them out to go and do the exact same things they've been watching. He sends them out to live in the same rhythm he's been living, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And that is how the harvest is gathered in. And then when Matthew sends us out at the end, or Jesus does at the end of Matthew's gospel, he sends us out to live the same rhythm. So what does this mean for us? What's this mean for us? It means if you are going to join Jesus in gathering in the harvest of the greater Akron area, then you need to step into this rhythm of mission. Teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Your life, don't get distracted by healing, right? So that could be the Lord leading you to actually pray for people's healing. So that's part of it. But it also goes down to you serving in the city in different ways in the community. That's bringing healing to the hurting, right? So it's a big category. You can say serving if that helps. But I'm trying to highlight that there's needs, hurts that need healing. That's what Jesus was aimed at. Our lives have to be shaped by the same missional rhythm that Jesus had as he worked together in the harvest. So this means we're not talking about mission as an event, but mission as a lifestyle. Evangelism is not an event. We don't go do evangelism. We live evangelistically. We live on mission. So we're talking about wherever you go, whatever you do, having in the forefront of your mind and weighing heavily upon your heart that the Spirit of God is upon you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, helping you to teach people what the Bible means, to proclaim the saving news of Jesus Christ, and to bring healing to the pervasive brokenness that exists in this world. That's why you're here. That is why you're here. You will not do mission in heaven. Mission will be over. Mission will be done. The only reason you are here is to live on mission and grow as a disciple as you do. Thank you. And I'm coming. Amen. Jacob wants me to come for him and for you. I I just want you to get this because... We can live our lives trying to build our lives as if our lives with a little Jesus in it is what this life is about. But we are left here for a reason. We are sent into this world on mission. And you are wasting your life if mission is not soaked in, baked in, woven into everything else you do. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. You have been sent to live on mission, to go and make disciples. And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. There are people all around you who need you. They need you, but they need you to live in this missional rhythm. People all around you who need you to help them understand what the Bible means, how to get into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, and they need your help being healed. So when you think about application to this, let me give you two categories for you to consider. We're going to be talking about mission a lot the next few weeks, and so we'll get to all this a lot more, but two categories for you to start thinking about. One 
is scheduling mission, this missional rhythm into your life. Just schedule the missional rhythm into your life. And so by that, I just mean look for opportunities to start a regular Bible study at your work or with a neighbor. Look for opportunities to schedule times of, of outreach with your community group uh, or with your family. And, and look for opportunities, or I mean, schedule opportunities to serve in the community. Uh, there are so many ministries doing great things serving the lost and the needy in our community, and you can just schedule a regular time of service into your life. So schedule this missional rhythm into your life, but then secondly, also be open to spontaneous missional moments. So schedule it, but be open to spontaneous as well, spontaneous missional moments. Uh, in the first service, Brenda had a prophetic word about being intentional. And that's what we're talking about, just living with gospel intentionality all the time. So I'm not great at this. Um, this is where in first service I said, I should have had Scott Hewlett give a testimony or something. Some, there are many of you who are better at this than I am, but I do have a testimony of God at work because I was thinking about these things that earlier this week from studying this passage. And, uh, and so all the pastors here, we went out to eat Wednesday night. And so I'm thinking about this stuff, and I'm thinking, I've got this waitress who just keeps coming back to my table, keep relating to us, and so I should think about ways to bring healing or the gospel or a teaching into her life, right? And so she was, and this is the kindness of the Lord, too, because she was like super social. She was like one of those, you don't have to do anything to get her talking, you know? And so it was like the Lord was just like, here you go, Jace, just... <laughs> practice with an easy one, you know, because the Lord knows I need it. And so, um, and so I just looked for opportunities and so I was, we, were, we were all trying to talk to her some and she started talking about her kids some. And so I was drawing her out about her kids and we were trying to all listen in here. And so she came back a little later and I said, listen, I just want you to know we're all pastors and, uh, and we want to pray for your children. And so she lit up, oh my goodness, I love Jesus too. And you're my brothers in Christ. And she was all excited about that. And so I was thinking I was going to serve her, bring healing by praying for her daughters. Find out, we can skip that. Well, I mean, I can still do that one, but find out it's not going to be a gospel opportunity because she's already a Christian. That's awesome. So then she, you know, we related, but she walked away. And so then I thought about this pastor and I thought, well, there's still teaching. There's a teaching. I wonder if there's a teaching opportunity for her. And so I didn't know, you know, I was just kind of praying about that. We started to leave, and I said, hey, do you, I grabbed her, I said, hey, do you have a church? And she said, actually, we're newer to the area, and we don't have a church. And so I just said, God wants you in a church. And she said, I know, I know. But I felt like that was actually what I was supposed to do, was to remind her of that conviction, that teaching. And I said, oh, I'm so glad you're looking for a church. Let me write down the information about our church. I don't care if you're at our church or a church, I just know the Lord's will for your life is to be in a church. Oh, thank you so much, Lord. So... What is that? That's just me. That's not every day of my life, believe me. But I do think it's what the Lord calls us to be open to. If we're going to join Jesus in gathering in the harvest, then we must step into the same rhythm of mission Jesus lived in, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. This brings us to point number two then this morning, the heart of mission. The heart of mission. You can do the rhythm of mission but you won't do it well and it won't last if you don't have the heart. And so look again with me at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Well, what we need to see here, well, one thing we can see here is Jesus was not like a missionary robot. Okay, like he 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 just go around teaching, proclaiming, and healing because that's you know that's just what he did. I just I just do this because that's what I do. Like now Jesus didn't just do it because that's what he's supposed to do. No, it was love that compelled him. It was his heart for the harvest. He was motivated by a burden that weighed heavy on his heart. What he saw in the synagogues he visited and on the city streets he walked and the open fields he traveled through, what he saw in the people there affected him. So let's take stock. What did he see? Well, first he saw the crowds. First he saw the crowds, it says. When he saw the crowds. A lot of stories we've said in Matthew up to this point have been very personal encounters, right? Like Jesus healing individuals, Jesus ministering to individuals. But here we're also seeing Jesus is very wild that there are masses of people. Masses of people. And I think in our day and age, 
Maybe this is particularly instructive because it's so easy to be focused on ourselves and our family and even just our church so that we live in this kind of little ecosystem, this little holy huddle where we're just so internal and we just miss the masses of people around us. The huge crowds that live outside our little world. But Jesus saw them. He saw the crowds, and then this is what he saw when he looked at them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when Jesus looked at the crowds, he perceived their plight. He perceived that they were harassed. This is a a really graphic word in the original Greek. It means to, it's talking about a body that's been torn apart or rent apart. And so what Jesus is seeing is he's seeing people in their hurt, in their pain. And I think that's a good part for us just to pause and ask ourselves is that how we see the lost? Do you see their pain? Or do you only see their problems? It's really easy to see problems. Oh, you know, if yeah, they come from a broken family. If 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 that family had stayed together, this wouldn't be like that. Or oh, if they if they would more wisely use their money, or man, if they wouldn't they didn't have that habit. Oh man, if they would just get a job and work hard enough, or if they wouldn't buy into that left-wing propaganda, <laughs> it's easy to see problems. And all that can be true. But Jesus looked past their problems. I mean, if anyone could assign guilt, it would have been Jesus. But he saw past all that. He saw they are injured. They're in pain. They're harassed, and Jesus perceived they're also helpless. Now this, this word literally means thrown or cast down. Helpless. And, and since Jesus is using a sheep metaphor, he's probably talking about what shepherds call a cast sheep or a thrown sheep. And this is when a sheep, it's kind of humorous in a sense though, rolls onto its back and it gets stuck there. Right, so in his book, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, Philip Keller uh, talks about this. He says, the way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or long-fleeced sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. You can see this cute little sheep always just laying down over there. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax. And suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. You may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is quite impossible for it to regain its feet. And then Keller concludes, a cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleat a little for help. But generally, it lies there lashing about in frightened frustration. I don't know about in your home, in my home, uh, if there are bugs in the house, I'm the bug slayer. Um, Particularly if they're spiders, those are enemies. Um, But I have very compassionate girls and a very compassionate wife who are are constantly begging me, like, just take it outside, like, so it can live. And I always say, I'm exercising dominion. <laughs> so I, I, I don't, I'm not necessarily the most compassionate person. And I can read this story about the sheep, and I can kind of laugh thinking about the sheep with his legs kind of flailing there frantically. And, but I, I sat there this week, and I, I, I tried to imagine this like my, my daughters might, about how frightened 
that sheep would be. Just how terribly vulnerable it is. It, it cannot get up without a shepherd coming along and helping. Other sheep aren't going to do it. It's helpless. And that's how Jesus sees the lost. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And this would have been a well-known metaphor to these Israelites. And at the same time, it was undoubtedly an indictment on the religious leaders of that day who had failed in their responsibility to care for the people of God They had not led them to green pastures. They had not led them beside still waters. They had not protected and provided for these people. And the reason is, the reason why, is because they did not love their people. They didn't really care about them. But Jesus, the good shepherd himself, takes in this scene, and he is moved with compassion. We're told he's deeply moved. He can't ignore what he observes and he perceives. Jesus saw the crowds as harassed and helpless. He perceived that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and it elicited this powerful response in Jesus. Uh, Verse 36 says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He felt compassion. This is actually the dominant emotion that is ascribed to Jesus in the Gospels. He was a compassionate man, and it's a, it's a very strong word in the Greek. Uh, it's a very strong word. It, really, it literally means moved from the gut. Moved from the gut. The idea is like from the deepest place within Jesus. He is moved with compassion for them. In his commentary on this passage, R.T. France helps us to understand this strong and pronounced emotional response when, when he writes, this response is described by the strongly emotional Greek verb, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I'll butcher it, but it's, it means compassion in English. But he says, this word speaks of a warm, compassionate response to need. No English term does justice to it, Compassion, pity, sympathy, and fellow feeling all convey part of it, but his heart went out. Perhaps represents more fully the emotional force of the underlying metaphor of a gut response. And I love this, he says, it is a verb which describes the Jesus of the gospel stories in a nutshell. Friends, Jesus was deeply moved by what he he saw. His his heart went out to the crowds. He so deeply cared for them. And this, this is the great wellspring of salvation. It is compassion that compelled the Father to send the Son. And it was love that led Jesus from heaven to earth and then from here in Galilee with his disciples to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. It was compassion, which is so present and pronounced in this passage that ultimately took him to the cross. It was his compassion that moved him to address not just our immediate needs, but to address our most serious problem by suffering in our place as our substitute for our sin. Friends, it was love that compelled Jesus to lay down his life for harassed and helpless sheep. And it was this love, it was this cross-shaped love, it was this life-giving compassion that not only motivated Jesus' mission, but it's the same love that through the ages has transformed cold and critical hearts into compassionate and caring hearts that share that same gospel from heart to mouth, from heart to mouth, from heart to mouth, until a certain heart was moved with such compassion for you and for me that they told you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by God's grace, you were saved, and you were transformed, and you were given a new heart that now has a capacity to love others as well. Friends, it is compassion that fuels the whole mission of God. It is the motive of mission. The motive is not a mandate to go. That's direction. The motive is a heart that cares. 
It's harassed and helpless sheep that have been so tenderly loved and cared for by the good shepherd that we can't help but go and share his love with other sheep. And this segues right into point number three, then, the need of mission. Just dovetails into this point. The need of mission. Having modeled mission and a heart for the lost, Jesus turns to his disciples and he essentially says, boys, I want you to see what I see. Verses 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, In these two verses, Jesus does some surprising things. I think some surprising things that are meant to awaken compassion in us. Uh, In these verses, to begin with, the first thing he does, maybe not so surprising, but you'll see where it gets surprising, is he switches metaphors. Right. So he's been talking about harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd, and he switches here to talking about a plentiful harvest. And this is part of his intentional effort, I think, to awaken the compassion of his disciples for the crowds and to awaken their expectation. And this is, this is how it would have the effect on them. Obviously, these guys would have known imagery of harvesting. They lived in an agricultural society. They also knew their Bibles. And the Old Testament frequently associated harvesting with future judgment. And so Jesus would know by tapping into this harvest imagery, he's tapping into how they see the world as filled with people fit for judgment. And so Jesus elicits their compassion by twisting, switching around the metaphor. He wants them to see, listen guys, there is a harvest, but there's not just a harvest of judgment. There is another harvest to be seen, another harvest to be worked. It's a harvest of grace. But then one might ask, well, how does Jesus know that there is a harvest of grace to be had? Now, how does he say with such certainty, hey, but listen, the harvest is plentiful. How does he know that? Right? I mean, like, why didn't he say, guys, it's a task worth doing? Or, guys, you know, looking around, I'm sure there's some people out there that are going to listen to you. You know, so let's go work the fields. How does he know that there is a plentiful harvest? Well, I know you could say, well, because he's Jesus. Thank you, all the children in children's ministry. I know that, and I know that's the answer, but let's think about it in this passage. How does he know that there is a harvest? The answer is, he is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. He has come to purchase a harvest by his own blood. So he knows. He knows all that are his. And he knows the harvest is plentiful. Listen, some of you are reading current events through the lens of Revelation that last book of the Bible, which I get. I just spent you know, my sabbatical studying Revelation, and it's easy to look around in the world right now and see beasts and false prophets and signs and seals, and is this the end? And what did Mark preach on the other day? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Surely I am coming. So I get that. But if you want to look at the world through a lens of Revelation, don't miss this reality Revelation 7, 9 through 10, after this I looked and behold a great multitude, there's a huge crowd that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus knows there is a great harvest to be had because he is the Lord of the harvest and because he is the loving Lamb who lays down his life for the sheep. 
This is how Jesus can declare to the disciples so definitively that there is a plentiful harvest because that is what he came to secure. Listen, Jesus is saying, it's not the harvest that is in short supply. There is no worry to be had about the harvest. The shortage is in the laborers. The shortage is in the laborers. The harvest is so big. The problem is the laborers are so few. Which challenges us. Because if you're like me, you tend to think the opposite. that no one wants to hear about Jesus. There are so few feels like I can get the gospel to. I look around at this church and I think, plenty of laborers to me. And I just visited six other churches. I know lots of laborers around town. feels to me like there are a lot of laborers and a little harvest. And Jesus would say, I'm the Lord of the harvest. Believe me, the harvest is plentiful. You know what Jesus lacks? He lacks laborers, but a certain kind of laborer. Compassion-filled laborers. Jesus is saying, I need laborers that have a heart for the harvest, like my own heart. And then in verse 38, I think he surprises them again because you would expect him to say, you know, laborers are few. So what do you expect next for him to, to look at the people, the disciples and say, okay, I'm going to start with you 12. Go get to work, right? Like you expect him to say, all right, time's to work. Which he's going to say in a minute. But first he says, don't work first. Pray first. Don't work first. Pray first. But then he surprises us again because what do you expect him to instruct them to pray for? What do, you, what do we expect him to tell us to pray for? Anybody? The lost. The harvest. I mean, when you pray for mission, don't you spend most of your time praying for the lost? But Jesus says, I got the lost. Pray for the laborers. Pray for the compassion-filled laborers that are needed. The great need of mission is earnest prayer for compassionate laborers. The great need of mission is earnest prayer for compassionate laborers. And here's the thing. When you begin praying earnestly, that word earnestly means to plead or to beg even. So when you begin to pray like that, begging God, begging God, pleading with Him, send out laborers, Lord, to this harassed and helpless generation. God, send them out, God. They, so many people need to hear about you and we just don't have enough laborers, Lord. Send them out. When you start praying like that, you know what happens inside of you? Compassion for the lost is cultivated. You begin to care. You begin to see their needs and their hurts and their pains. And it begins to matter to you. Now, I was speaking to, to someone the other day, earlier this week in our church, um, I, who will remain nameless, but I was speaking about them, about this text, about caring for the lost, and they very humbly, they very, admitted, very honestly admitted to me that they don't care enough about the lost. And then what they said next was so revealing. They said, there's a lot of things they need to work on in their lives, so this one will have to wait. 
And we can kind of cringe at that because we think, ooh, that's really bad. But I mean, honestly, which of us have not thought that before, right? Like, oh, I should care more about the loss, but I just, I got this to do, and I'm working on this, and the Lord's doing this. So really, actually, I appreciate how honest they were and how humble they were in that. And I thought, I understand, because it can feel like just adding one more thing to do. And if you don't have compassion for the lost, it feels overwhelming to say, like, I have to start having compassion. I don't even know how to do that. So my, my plea is, okay, but can you just start to pray? Just adding to your prayers every day an earnest prayer for laborers to go into the harvest. Can you just begin to pray for that? Can you beg the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his vast field of grace? Could you just begin to pray earnestly for that? Because if you can, and if you will, and if you will, here's the deal, you'll begin caring for the lost. And by the very act of praying, God will cultivate that compassion in you. And by just praying, your eyes will be opened and you'll start to see the harassed and the helpless all around you. Only you do have to be prepared for this. You do have to be prepared for this if you pray that prayer. You have to be prepared to be the answer to your own prayer. Because if you pray like that for very long, you'll begin to hear the voice of the Lord calling you to go out into the harvest, to see the harvest all around you. Earnest prayer is the great need of mission. And so this is where I want us to close today. Just on applying this point. Cup of Grace, I want to invite you to hear the call of our Lord to pray. We have a great church. I'm so grateful for the grace of God in our church. But we could be a lot stronger at mission. Wouldn't you agree? Would, would most yes. of you agree? Evangelism, mission, we could just be a lot stronger at that, right? Yes. And that can feel like overwhelming. What are, I mean, what do we even do? What, I mean, there are gifted people. I'm not. Don't worry about it. Just commit to start praying. And the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers. We don't have to have the master plan, folks. We just have, a, have to have a commitment to pray. So I invite you to hear his call, Jesus' call afresh, and let's respond in faith with earnest prayer. I want to ask you to commit to pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up and send out laborers into his harvest. I I want to ask you to commit to a season of praying for that, even every day, to pray that the Lord would raise up laborers in our midst, that he would raise up us, that he would open doors for us, that he would raise up church planters from among us, that he would raise up evangelists who will help us to bridge into the harder neighborhoods and the harder peoples in our city. That he would raise up missionaries from our midst who will go out to every tribe, language, people, and nation. I want us to hear the loyal or the call of the Lord to pray because if we do this, if we pray earnestly like this, I anticipate God will grow our hearts for the harvest even as he begins to move in our midst in ways that are marvelous in our eyes. All we have to do is start praying. So let me just leave you with this last little quote here that I think is just so wonderful from J.I. Packer's excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He writes this, We shall not inquire anxiously about the minimum outlay of effort in evangelism that will satisfy God. How much do I have to do to get by, Lord? But, we don't have to do that. He said, but we shall ask eagerly and pray earnestly 
to be shown just how much it is in our power to do to spread the knowledge of Jesus Christ among men. And once we see what the possibilities are, we shall give ourselves wholeheartedly to the task. That's what I want for our church, that we ask eagerly, pray earnestly to be shown just how much it is in our power to do to spread the knowledge of Christ among men. And once we see what the possibilities are, oh, then I know we shall give ourselves wholeheartedly to the task. So let's pray right now. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ in compassion for us, in love for us, to give his life for us. The great missionary who not only brought words of life, but is the word of life. We thank you for that transfer of the gospel from generation to generation until someone had compassion on us and shared that gospel with us, Lord. We are recipients of divine compassion. Undeserving. It's amazing grace. All comes from you, Lord. It all comes from you. You're the wellspring of it all, Lord. It's your love that drives everything in mission, Lord. And so we're, we're trying to tap back into that original wellspring and drink deeply from Jesus' living water, Lord. I pray for those here today who just have not been familiar recently with the compassion of Jesus for them. They haven't been familiar. They haven't been receiving God's mercy in their life. Instead, they've, they've lived under condemnation or they've, they've lived far from you, closed-hearted to you. Lord, I pray that you would just be breaking up that fallow ground today, Lord. Help them to receive your compassion. Help them to see that you look on them and, and compassion wells up inside of you. May they receive that, Lord. And I pray for us as well, God. I pray for us. Raise up laborers, Lord. Raise up laborers. Workers of the field. So many of us, I believe, so many of us here today are saying, we're like Isaiah. We're like, send me, Lord. Send me. I'll do it. Send me. Yes. Yes. Praise the Lord. God, we don't know how to do it. (laughs) We're not very good at it. But send us, Lord. We'll go in faith. We'll go leaning on you, Lord. Send us out. God, I pray that you would raise up laborers to work the fields of the greater Akron area here, Lord. I pray that you would raise up church planners from our midst. I pray that you would raise up evangelists to help us reach the lost. I pray that you would raise up missionaries to take it to the ends of the earth, Lord. I pray that that people would look at all that has come out of Covenant of Grace Church and they they would just say, well, that, that didn't come from that church. That came from the God of that church. Because they are they are small in nature, but but they are mighty in work because their God is mighty God I pray that that would be the banner over this church Lord for your glory I ask this all in Jesus